Um, today we have a guest speaker. His name is Byron Burden, and his wife is Lucinda, and they're just sitting right back there in a row with a bunch of guests they brought with them. They've got a son, Mason, uh, Niall, and their daughter, Kellen. Kellen? Is that right? Okay. Uh, Byron has pastored Van Cleek Hill Baptist Church for ten and a half years and currently works as a customer service representative while Lucinda homeschools Niall and Kellen. Mason has just completed his first year in the mathematics co-op program at the University of Ottawa, and so we congratulate you for that. And they remain in transition living in Canada uh, as they seek new opportunities to serve. And so today you're going to serve us by preaching today, and we welcome you, Byron. Um, the burdens are, I've been told, devoted bookworms. And this is what I've got on the paper here. But when they surface, they enjoy watching old t television shows and movies. I don't know if you like to watch TCM. That's uh, all those really old movies like uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and all those kinds. I like those old ones, too. And playing board games, too. So that's a little bit about Byron. And, Byron, if you'd like to come up and, and share with us what uh, God has laid upon your heart. And we thank you f for coming. to be able to be with you. Can I ask you to turn all the way back in the Old Testament to the book of Jonah? And we're going to read Jonah chapter 1, and then we're going to move all the way ahead to Mark, and you'll see how they connect. So if you find Psalms and Proverbs, just keep on going. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, keep going. You run into Jonah. My Bible is page 819. That may not help you, but it'll get you close. Jonah chapter 1. We read there, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own god. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your god. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? Where's your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, 
who made the sea and the land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please don't let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Now keep that in mind, and that general structure as to what happens there, and please turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 35, but before we do, let's pray. Father, you've given us your word so that we can know you. You've revealed to us who you are, particularly and most completely and fully in the person of your Son. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. And we pray that he would show us ourselves our faith, the way we live, and enable us to make godly choices, and to live in ways that honor you, even as we wait for his return. Help us as we look at this together, we pray, in Jesus' name. The Sea of Galilee. It goes by a number of other names as well, depending on geography, the biggest town on its shore, the shape of the lake. So as we read through, it's referred to differently, but most commonly, the Sea of Galilee. We'd call it a lake, a big, freshwater one, full of fish. Peter and Andrew, James and John, are four of Jesus' closest disciples, four of the twelve, we call them. And they were all professional fishermen who knew the Sea of Galilee and knew it well. 
And they knew that it wasn't a quiet, gentle lake. Because, like most fishermen, they know that lakes all have their particular quirks or personalities. And Galilee was known to be a dangerous, unpredictable lake. In terms of the geography, it's nearly 700 feet below sea level. So basically what happens that makes it that way is you've got these sharply rising mountains and steep cliffs, and the winds rush down, they're cold, They're coming down, and they encounter this still, heavy, wet air, and bang, you have these incredible storms that come up like nobody's business. They're unpredictable, they're fast, and they hit. They knew that that was what Galilee was like. And they knew that the worst of the storms come when evening comes. Verse 35, Mark chapter 4. That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. We don't have time to go all the way back through Mark chapter 4, but let me encourage you to do so, and you'll see that it has been a long utterly exhausting day for Jesus and the disciples. And Mark has been painting several pictures in a row, helping us to see, in some ways, how very human Jesus was. It's easy to forget that sometimes. He was exhausted. And he was not inclined just to stay put. He said, let's go. Right now, let's leave. It's his initiative, it's his desire, and that's exactly what they do. You'll see there's no special preparations, there's no packing for the trip, there's no stopping for supper. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Now, again, you go back and you said that the crowds have been so heavy. This is an unusual time in Jesus' ministry. It's like he's the name on the block. He's the most popular one around. And the masses are cramming after him all the time. He can't get away with them no matter what he does. And in this case, and in several recent cases around there, the crowds have been so heavy and pushing so much, hey, you can't breathe. And basically, he's been preaching from a boat. Because if you get in the boat and get... You have some space, and the people can hear him better. So that's this dynamic, and it seems that it's not like he even comes back to shore. Either they're leaving in that boat that he's been preaching from, or he's climbed from one over into another boat. And I want you to stop for a second, and I want to jump to January 1986. Yeah, 1986. It was a long period of drought in Palestine and Israel, and the Sea of Galilee got smaller and smaller, and part of the underneath of the sea, what's the proper term for that? The bottom? Doesn't sound very particular, does it? You saw more and more of it, and they found a boat that had never been uncovered before. 
and they sort of sent out the alert and all the authorities were coming in and they were bringing in people and they were building walls to stop the water because it started to rain again shortly thereafter and the level started to rise. And they went to work and in six weeks, they exhumed this boat. This boat, let's say it started here. Let's say I'm three footsteps, six, nine, 12, 15, 18, 21, 24, 27. That's the length of the boat. So make it from back pew to front pew. That's the length. So we're not talking a small boat here. This is one of the biggest boats on the lake. And when they checked it out, you know, you carpenter types, it's, it's oak frame and it had cedar planks. But it had seven other kinds of wood all patching this and fixing this up. And oh, well, we got to make this work. Those of you who like fishing... It's a flat-bottomed boat, so it can go really close to shore to get wherever the fish are. It's a type of boat that could seat a number of people. Typically, there was a crew of five. The helmsman in the back and four staggered rowers. But it could hold up to 15 people. And this is the exact kind of boat that we're reading about. The neat thing is this. The helmsman, and at the front as well, the boat, though it was shallow, it was elevated and had a deck. A short little deck at front and back. So you could have something underneath it at either end. And it seems to be the exact kind of boat that Mark's talking about. Now, you can say, why are you going into all this detail? Because this is what helps us understand just how absolutely reliable the scriptures are. We just see these things backing up, and it helps us understand the picture that Mark's painting for us. When they did dating techniques... Construction or carbon 14, construction techniques, pottery pieces dated to the Roman period between AD 70 and back to 100 BC. I mean, you can go see it now if you want. You travel, it's in a museum perfectly preserved on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Imagine what Mark is describing for us and what all of his readers would understand because this is the type of boats they're used to seeing. There's no rowboat, one of the biggest ones on the lake. Jesus has got in there as well as the disciples. So there's at least that 13 people. Since the four of them were already fishermen, probably one of the other ones is, is helmsman, something like that. You know, it may well not be anybody else, but there may be one or two others on board as well. And they set out. But they're not alone. Did you notice that? The very next phrase, there were also other boats with them. Another sort of eyewitness detail. It doesn't, you notice, they don't appear in the story at all. They don't play any role. It's just one of those things that helps us remember that this isn't a story made up to teach a lesson like Aesop's fables. This is real history. And Peter's remembering what he saw. That's where Mark got his material from. 
Peter knows, there was this little flotilla that all headed out together that night. One of the another reasons why eyewitness details tell us how trustworthy what we have is. Now look at the next verse. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Now, I read different commentators just to see what they had to say. And one guy said, well, Jesus was just so calm with, with, with everything. He was sleeping there as the waves dashed over him and everything else. And I thought, that just seems a little bit unrealistic. You know, I have no question that Jesus was calm and trusting the Father. But how many people stay asleep when a wave goes over your head? You know? But if this is a boat that has a deck at the front and the deck at the back, small, limited, where you could be out of the way? And where does it say he was sleeping? On, on what? On a pillow. You know, technically it doesn't say on a pillow. It says on the pillow. Because the helmsman was there all the time and he had his cushion where he sat. Just makes perfect sense. And that's where Jesus says, he's out of the way. And he is sound as... It gives you an idea of just how exhausted he was. They get in, they're going out, and he's out. He's exhausted. And the storm hits so quickly, he's still out. But they're sure not. When it says furious squall, don't think, oh, there's a bad gust coming here and there. Think gale force winds, hurricane-like. That's what's happening here. And I think it gives you a little bit of a clue when it says the waves are crashing over the boat. It's filling even as they're frantically bailing to try to keep on going. And these four fishermen who are pros, who've made their living for years on this lake, they know it. They're not saying, oh, don't worry, it's just another storm, we'll be fine. They're afraid for their lives. They know this is an incredible storm and that has every likelihood that they are going to drown. And it's that sort of scenario. They're desperately afraid for their lives and the camera pans to Jesus. And he's sleeping soundly. With them shouting, with the storm going on, with the waves going over, Jesus is sleeping peacefully. What a contrast between the two. And that's what Mark wants us to see as we, as we picture this boat with all these people and all that's going on and the other boats who are all part of it as well, experiencing that same storm. The disciples woke him, we read, and said to him, don't miss it. What do they say to him? Do they say, excuse me, sir? If you don't mind, we need to speak to you for a moment? No, that's not what they say. Some people, unfortunately, want to remove all the gritty details that God gives us for a reason and make it a little more airbrushed. What do they say? Teacher, 
Don't you care if we drown? These are not the words of somebody who is relaxed and at ease. We're going to die for all you care, apparently. It's rude. It's blunt. It's rough. It's real. Now, what they say is not true. It's wrong on several different levels, but it's what they're feeling and thinking. It gives us a glimpse into their minds. If he cared, he wouldn't be lying there sleeping. He'd be awake helping us. And they've seen his miracles. They've seen all sorts of them already. But they haven't seen what happens next. On the one hand, I love to see that Jesus is not offended. You notice Jesus doesn't say, if you're going to speak to me that way, then I'm just not going to do anything. Aren't you glad that Jesus isn't like that? Because when you're real and you shout out to him, he doesn't say, sorry, no, 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 that's not right. Let's try again. No, he cares for them. He cares for what they're experiencing. He understands what they're going through. It doesn't mean it's right, and it doesn't mean he ignores it, but he understands. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet! Be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Then he turns to the disciples and addresses them. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? That's the question I want to camp on. That's what I want us to reflect on. Why are you so afraid, he says. Now, Jesus is not oblivious. Oh, well, Jesus, we're afraid because there's a storm going on. I know you were asleep and you may not have realized that, but no, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is pushing. He's probing under the surface. With this storm going on like this and you're afraid of drowning, why? Why are you so afraid? Where's your faith? I think we really miss often the drama of what's going on in a situation like that. So I want to stop for a minute here. Try to put yourself in a similar situation. Imagine something that would make you feel the same way that they were feeling. Here's a couple of tries. What if some firefighters had followed Jesus as disciples? And let's say they've gone together with a group of other followers up to Mount Tremblant. They're up there for the weekend, and they're paying pool in the basement of the chalet. When a fire starts up in the kitchen. But they're playing pool. They're not up there in the kitchen. So it just keeps on going and going and going. And by the time they first sort of smell the smoke, 
When they go up, the whole main floor is already totally engulfed and there's no way out. So they're there bailing water out of the sump pit and they've got another little fire extinguisher and they're doing the blankets and they're doing all they can, but they're losing. And there's no way out. And then somebody remembers Jesus is sleeping on the futon in the corner. And they go over and wake him up. And he wakes up and he says, stop. And the fire stops. And the smoke's gone. And Jesus says, why are you so afraid? You still have no faith. What about another picture? Some people like spelunking. You know, go cave exploring down in abandoned mines, that sort of thing. So what if a group of spelunkers is 200 feet down below in an abandoned mine shaft when an earthquake hits? And, and the dirt's starting to fall, and there's some boulders coming down, and the, the way support's giving away, and they're trying to do everything to stop it, and, and then they're digging themselves out, and their, their air's disappearing, and, and their lights are failing, and then they remember. Jesus is around the corner, sound asleep in the next shaft. And they go to him and stop. And the earthquake stops. And the oxygen comes back. And the lights go on. And he says, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Well, it could be a group of pilots up in a plane, you know, thunderstorm and the engines stop and they can't do anything? They wake up Jesus and the engines come back on and the storm stops? Why are you afraid? You know, any of those sorts of situations help us get a bit of a taste for what's going on here. Don't be so hard on the disciples that you say, well, you know, why didn't they just trust him? He'd already done all those miracles. How would you be feeling in the middle of that? They're afraid for their lives. And they're afraid. And the fear is ruling them. Jesus asks, why? Why are you afraid? He understands their fear. But he's also disappointed. We see that several times in Jesus' ministry, don't we? It's not that he loves them any less. But again and again, you see those little glimpses where Jesus is disappointed that they didn't have more faith, that they didn't trust, that they didn't understand. How much longer am I going to have to be with you? Those sorts of things. I think we can be encouraged by that. I know I sure don't get it quickly. And I forget things again and again. And I need to be reminded again and again. I'm thankful Jesus doesn't just give up on us. 
even when we don't have the faith that we should because of what we've already seen and experienced. Don't let your familiarity with the story block seeing the reality. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? What do those words imply? Seems to me that in the most desperate situations, when we can't see any reason for hope, there's no alleviation in sight, everything is as dark and as desperate as we can imagine, Jesus' words imply that we do not need to be afraid even then. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean he takes away the storms all the time in life. That sure isn't true. But it says in the midst of the storm, I don't have to be afraid. I don't need to give in to fear. I can trust, as Jesus expected the disciples. Did they understand everything? No. He knew they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. He knew that they were learning and growing. And even yet, he says, do you still have no faith? Even that level of faith, that confidence that Jesus had a role to play and a mission to complete that wasn't finished yet meant God was not going to let them drown. One of the old hymns, I can't remember which one, talks about we are immortal here until our work is done. That's true in the sense that nothing's going to take us out except God when it's his time and his place. So if that's true, then I can trust him. I can have confidence that he will do his purposes and that he has a role for you and I to play as well with whoever we're interacting with. I don't need to worry because Jesus does care. It's not that, you know, some pie in the sky, oh, you know, everything's going to be fine. Eh, may not. doesn't say it's going to be, but it says we will be fine with him, with us. What Jesus does there in the boat highlights the whole question of who he is. Friends of ours like to vacation outside Pembroke on Round Lake. Some of you have been there. It's beautiful sand beaches. And when you get into the water, it doesn't get deep real quick. It's shallow, and you can go out, and it's warm. Their daughter, Julie, absolutely loves to play on that sandy beach. Now, Julie's 19 right now. But Julie has Down syndrome. And her mental age isn't 19. She still absolutely loves to play on the beach. Lots of us can do that at any age. But Julie tends to play in her own make-believe world. Whether she's playing on the beach or splashing in the water, it's a beautiful place for her. 
this one particular blustery summer day, her dad looked out and saw Julie standing near the edge of the water, and, and the waves were coming in. They weren't waves like this, but they were waves. And he could see Julie was talking out. He couldn't tell what she was saying. So he you know, came out the door and let it quietly close behind him, and he got closer and closer and closer until he could hear what Julie was saying. She had her arm out. She was saying, peace, be still. Peace, be still. Peace, be still. But it didn't make any difference. Now, we laughed together when we heard the story. Julie knew the story, but her words did not have that kind of power. How much different the words of Jesus. All he had to do was speak. Notice how deeply asleep he was. It wasn't like he woke up the second. It's almost reiterated the way Mark says it. They went over to him. They woke him. And then you read the different versions in Matthew and Luke as well. And you see then it says, and when he awoke... Once he sees what's happening, all it takes is his word. It stops. Now that is absolutely incredible. We've got some people that are proclaimed as faith healers today. Sometimes God heals through people. And they can speak and someone's healed. And the disciples have seen that. We have prophets who sometimes see things ahead of time. Or given an insight into someone's mind. Doesn't happen often. It's occasionally the way God works, apparently. But how many storm stoppers do we have out there? How many people put out their shingles that say, when you have an earthquake, just pick up your phone and call and I'll stop you? You don't have many pretenders there, do you? Because this is on a totally different scale. And this is what they see. This one who speaks, and they are what? Relieved? Relaxed? What are they? They are afraid. They are terrified. They're more afraid now than they were in the middle of the storm. Because what they're seeing is is totally intimidating and overwhelming. Now, we see a lot of movies with supernatural beings and super people of various natures and mutations. But if we remember, it's all phony. This isn't. This is real. This is watching somebody that you thought you were getting to know and suddenly being absolutely stunned to recognize you really don't have a clue of the depth of who this person is. Because this is the Son of God who speaks and the wind and the waves listen and obey. You know, we can go back in the Old Testament and you see other things as well. You see that he speaks and the clouds and the storms obey. He speaks and controls the flames. We know that the rocks and the trees and the demons, we've already seen that in Mark if we go back. They all listen and obey as well. 
This is the word of the Lord. Quiet. Be still. He speaks to the storm like you speak to your dog. And you expect him to obey when you speak to him. Or else he isn't very well trained. And the storm obeys. Because he's the master. They were terrified, Mark says, not of the storm, but of Jesus. Overwhelmed with a very different kind of fear. Fear of the unknown, as it were. Something beyond their comprehension. Who is this, they ask, that even the winds and the waves obey him? Matthew, Mark, and John all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this story, each emphasizing what it tells us about Jesus. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who created the world and all that is in it, and his word still rules. And that was something beyond anything they dealt with yet. Why are you so afraid, he asked. Why do we fear? Has Jesus not promised that he will never leave us or forsake us if we have entrusted ourselves to him? Did he not say that it was better that he leaves so that the Holy Spirit could come and be with each one of us? That we never ever need to think that he's forsaken us or abandoned us or forgotten us or has fallen asleep? We have no need to fear. Those who have believed on him and entrusted themselves to him have nothing to fear. In reality, he is no less with us than he was with the disciples in the boat on the sea. They thought God would let them and Jesus drown in the moment because they had forgotten who he was. Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now let's come back to Jonah. Some commentators point out how all the key hooks, as it were, of Jonah's experience are reproduced here. You've got them going out on the sea in the boat. You've got the violent storm. You've got them fearing for their lives and doing desperately all they can to try to salvage their boat. You've got one totally asleep. You have this question of what do we do to stop it? You have the action being taken followed by a supernatural calm. And in the story of Jonah, what was their response to the supernatural calm? They greatly feared 
the Lord. They had all their own gods that they worshipped, but hey, this one that Jonah had a connection with was totally different. And over here we have, what's their reaction? Fear. Overwhelmed with the one that they have to come in contact, confronted with. Jonah told the sailors he'd have to be thrown overboard to stop the storm and save them. They tried everything else, but in the end they did it and were saved. Knowing who Jesus is should remind us that our eternal doom, death, or life is all connected with him. And that our certain death was only possible to be removed through the death of that one. The one who spent three days and three nights in the grave and said, you will have only the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's all you need, he said. And if we're wise, we won't take Jesus lightly either. In many ways, Christian culture as a whole is maybe far too chummy with Jesus and God. There is a good and right kind of fear. And we should fear Jesus in that sense. A godly reverence that he is far above us, that he is over us, that he is in control, that he is powerful. He is not a tame lion, to borrow C.S. Lewis phrase. He's not a pet. He's not a genie. He is a dangerous lion, but he is loved as well, and he loves us, and he saves those who believe in him. We can trust him, not necessarily to stop the storm, that's not the lesson there but to know that he is with us even in the midst of the storm and we do not need to be afraid. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? I know I've got an awful lot of room for growth. Father, so often it's easy for us to talk about having faith. It's much harder to live it out, especially when things grow dark. Help us to look at our surroundings, our situation, what we're struggling or dealing with. Help us, we pray to remind ourselves of who you are. That we don't need to be afraid. That we can trust you and you are worthy of our faith. And will never let us down. 
we ask that in your name.